0: My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am
1: hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at BroBible.com. Today I am joined by the podcast Halfway House of a co-host, Brandon <laughs> Katz, industry analyst, I believe, at Parrot Analytics. What's going on, B?
2: Going on, man. I still like that, uh, I still like that intro. That's that's a good term for me.
1: We'll be joined by our regular co-host, Kate Onder, any minute now. I think he's having some internet problems. Busy world, time is money, so we're going to get started without him, and he'll probably pop in at some point, hopefully to talk to us a bit about what the hell is going on with Halloween ends, because... While Brandon and I aren't really horror film guys, we have been utterly fascinated by the discourse around it. But it's let's been, it's been even
2: more rewarding since we don't know what's going on to be like, what are you guys talking about? This sounds so bizarre.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It's like, how hard is it to make a slasher movie? You're like, how do you fuck this up? This extraordinarily. Like anyway, l- I know. So r- real quick, this news actually just dropped. We're not going to dive into it, but I, I just want to touch on it quick. Oh, there he is speak of the devil and speak of segue reports indicate that sasha baron cohen from deadline too. sasha baron cohen is going to make his mcu debut as mephisto in ironheart so speak of the devil cade in a different location and a shaved face just throwing me off everywhere he possibly could today Showing up late to the podcast
3: new face new house um the same house, I just, I was too lazy to move all my shit into my bedroom. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I too much going on. Uh, well, you
1: made it here just in time <laughs> for probably the most exciting topic of the week, and that is the Great. massive DC news that dropped on, say, Tuesday, Monday night, coincidentally, just a few days before the release of Black Adam. And that is that, uh, to make a long story short, Man of Steel 2 is in the early stages of being in the works. They're currently looking for writers to build out the film. There is no indication of whether it would be a direct sequel to Man of Steel 2, but the long and short of it is that Henry Cavill is being eyed to return as Superman. Of course, this news is conveniently timed with the release of Black Adam in the coming days. Make of that what you will. I wrote a post. I looked back back in January of 2020 being like, the Rock's whole hierarchy of power thing is about the Man of Steel. And so now all of this news is coming to the forefront at once. And then the, the final tidbit from that is that the dream director that Warner Bros. has in mind is Mission Impossible director Christopher McQuarrie, although they acknowledge, given his Tom Cruise-filled schedule, that probably won't happen. I have been the internet's foremost. The Man of Steel is actually a good proponent for quite some time. We've talked about it plenty on this show, so we don't need to regurgitate our men of steel thoughts. But B, I would love to start with you from the industry perspective of sort of what this means, because the gist of the THR piece that I seem to into was that the departure of Walter, Lata, whose regime seems worse and worse with each passing day, has created something of a power vacuum. And it seems as though the rocks stepped to fill it and is sort of Him, along with, it seems, James Gunn and Matt Reeves, those three names seem to be the ones who DC are giving the keys to. Use that big brain of yours and tell (laughs) us what you think is going on and what you feel about it.
2: Okay, well, just for a second, I want everybody to ignore the impressive names involved. So forget (laughs) for, no, seriously, forget for a second, Dwayne Johnson, Matt Reeves, James Gunn, filmmakers, creatives that we all really, really like. When your corporate entity is being carved up like the wild wild west and basically different people are calling dibs on different areas without any overarching plan even if your plan is to say hey screw interconnectivity let's just go back to standalones," it's just not a great way to run your business particularly when it's meant to be a 10-year plan for a multi-billion dollar operation that we've seen reaches the highest highs when there is a little bit of a, a interconnectivity and plan involved. Again, I'm not saying these are going to be bad films, bad products that come out. I like all those names. I like J.J. Abrams. I still hope he gets uh, you know his fill. But it just seems a little concerning that after a decade of disarray and chaos and turnover at D.C., there's going to be another decade of disarray, chaos, and turnover at D.C. Smarter people calling shots in siloed areas, but still the lack of coordination for what should be a a, a solid joint effort is concerning from an executive kind of strategy standpoint, but Hey, you know, again, obviously I want to see the Batman too. Obviously I want to see whatever James Gunn does.
1: Isn't that kind of wanting your cake and eating it too? Like can the world of the Matt Reeves, Batman's and the Joaquin Phoenix's jokers exist if they were to go full till MCU mode?
2: It's going to be really tough. If they really want a connected DCEU, I think, of course, there's still room for standalones. Just how, like, you know, we had the, the the Fox Marvel properties for years and the Disney proper Marvel property for years. There's still room for it. You can do it. But I do think over time it confuses audiences and it can drag on the brand when you have such disparate threads all over. Uh, again, I, I think there's there's opportunity to branch out. But you would like to see, again... Uh, an operation with a little bit of central guidance and vision. I mean, there's a reason why he tried to hire David Zasloff, tried to hire Emma Watts and Dan Lynn for DC president, you know, role, it, it, you know, this, this is a result of failed action, not, Oh, this was the plan all along.
1: And then in a vacuum, how do you feel about sort of a renewed intention to get Cavill's Superman back in the fold?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm good with it, of course, but much like uh, much like my Washington Commanders fandom, I've kind of reached a point with DC. where, of course, I'm not as down as I am on the Washington Commanders, who are a complete dysfunctional joke. But I'm at the point where, like, I need you know consistent results before I'm back in the game. You know, I, I'm not going to get my hopes up. I need to see like, okay, that was a solid product, and it was followed up by another solid product, and one more. Okay, I'm you know I'm in. I'm I feel secure and on safe footing again.
1: I will just say, I feel the same way about my Jets. Like, despite the fact that they're four and two, which is unbelievable in and of itself, I still don't have that passion for them because they still haven't convinced me that this is real.
2: Exactly. And I
1: feel like you're saying the same thing.
2: Like, there's such a swing from, like, a peacemaker to then, like, this and that. So you just, you just want some consistency.
1: My instant
3: reaction to this news was, oh, yes, fuck yes, finally, it's time. And then my, like, once my hype had gone away a little bit and, like, I had time to process the information that was being given to me, I'm like, they still don't know what they're doing. They're just like, we are trying to course correct 500 different ways. Cause like they have tried to course correct, like with JJ Abrams, black Superman and that whole thing. And like, it's this, we don't know. Like th- there's already rumors that Warner brothers is going to get sold off to another company again in
1: like three to five years.
2: So like <laughs>
1: <laughs> th- there's no, I don't understand that there needs to be laws against that shit, but that, but that's a different Uh,
2: probably going to happen.
3: Okay, (laughs) good. So it's just kind of like, is this any of this concrete? I think the man of steel two thing. I think there's enough pressure behind that.
1: The rock, when I spoke to him today and all right, this is a spoiler warning for black Adam. So I'm warning you right now, but the rock also told it to me. Hey y'all, it's Eric. So I just want to make this clear really quick. So we are going to be discussing spoilers for Black Adam. We are discussing the post-credit scene specifically. Now, this information came from The Rock himself during an official Junket interview. So if you want to take The Rock's word and assume that what we talk about is okay to talk about before the release of the film, because he is the one who brought it up, then continue to tune in. If you would like to skip it, I'd say skip ahead to about the 16-minute mark, and that's when we will be discussing the part of the THR report that details what Matt Reeves is up to. All right, y'all. Back to the show. Okay.
3: I, I think you we care. all
2: know what. Yeah, no, I, but like you said, spoiler warning after Kate had already <laughs> basically spoiled it. Well, I could still cut that shit out. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm not.
1: Sure. Uh, The magic of <laughs> editing. <laughs> the Rock is
2: essentially so, publicly, to, to and I think to partially goose opening weekend box office numbers, which fair. Totally respect that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's the whole point of a junket. Yeah, he's yeah. basically said, you know, he's confirmed it pretty publicly without being like oh
1: henry no, no, no 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 to me he said and with henry Cavill superman in the post-credit scene okay yeah. boom there you go So he's out there saying it with blackout and branded zoom <laughs> backgrounds behind him so i don't yeah, I, you know i don't know if he's sort of like and i'm not saying that the rock was confused but maybe because i was taking part in the uk junket and he didn't realize that i was u.s press that there was some sort of overlap there but like his outwardness to be like not only Henry Cavill and Superman, but post credit scene. He so he's packaged that same thing in different
3: ways without, I don't know if he's always said like outright, but he's definitely like diptoed around it. And yeah. as this press tour has gone along, he's been more and more leaning towards like, and now with you, yeah, he's just in it. <laughs> so Yeah. All right. Kate, uh, so it's out there. So, but uh, I think you do not get him back. If you don't have some semblance of a plan uh so Um, i i don't know if i agree i mean who who else have they he strike cavill strikes me that had been a thing you know that's the whole thing
1: cavill strikes (laughs) me as a nerd who just like is like yeah i'm down to keep playing superman (laughs) i I think that's all it is for him sure the various
3: rumors over the years have been like uh uh he doesn't want to do it because warner brothers isn't playing nice with him and warner brothers is not wanting him it's like there's 500 different things happening with just him alone. And then you have everything outside of that. Just, I don't know. Sorry. Go ahead.
2: I just want to quickly say, Kid, I know you are now the co-host, but uh, we started post-cred pod with a couple DC rewinds leading into DC fandom in right. August, 2020. So that was essentially our fourth or fifth episode ever. And in our DC fandom episode, we said like, hey, if there was ever a time for Warner Brothers to announce that Henry Cavill is back, it's with Dwayne Johnson, Black Adam promotion starting. And we were wrong then, but you know what? (laughs) On the long view, we were right, baby, let's go. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: Because because we've been saying, look, The Rock has been messaging the hierarchy of power thing for literal years. And that is a uncoded way of saying that like, I am trying to challenge the top of this franchise. And he wouldn't have said that for years if he wasn't trying to go this route. Now, reports indicate that the post-credit scene was shot in September. So he just got it over the line last minute because apparently he went over some DC execs head. But I will just say now that we've kind of gone off on this tangent, and this is part of The Rock's thing, right? He is charismatic as hell. But when I spoke to him, and I put this out in a tweet too, for the first, like DC for a long time, its branding has just been shit, right? Like it just feels, it just feels... Acidic and tainted, but The Rock brings a swagger and a passion, and whether or not it's viable or not, a vision that this franchise hasn't had in a long time. And when you hear him talking about it and his plan and his excitement, you get excited too. And maybe, you know, we aren't Snyder haters, but we aren't Snyder stands either. This is so, it's so tough to talk about this guy. (laughs) I'm not saying that I think he was. Bad for the job. I also don't think he was right for the job either. But for the first time since Zack Snyder, it feels like the like somebody at least has an idea of what they want to do. You know what I mean? And The Rock is a far better PR man and salesman and lobbyist. They're, you know, we're we're talking a top five most powerful man in Hollywood. So just seeing him literally going over executives' head to give to get. Caval back in the fold. I don't want to say it feels promising, but if you were to tell me, hey, man, we're like, they're going to give the keys to James Gunn, Matt Reeves, and The Rock, I'd say that sounds like a good idea. So that's kind of where I'm at now, especially I'm the king of, I'm not going to believe in them at all until they prove it to me. I saw Black Adam fully expecting a Wonder Woman 2 nightmare. So maybe that is a result of my low bar, but I found it to be like a, oh, this is what superhero films are supposed to be. Uh, You know, two hours in and out, shit blows up. The writing, is it great? No, but did I chuckle a few times? Yeah, the CGI looked really good. The pacing was perfect. There there is never a what time is it? Can I go pee moment? So this is a lot of words to make a small point of. I find this all to be a, a step in the right direction.
3: Who would have guessed Black Adam was going to be the the key to getting us like a steering the ship doesn't have to be the piece that, you know, makes us go faith is restored. But to be like, hey, maybe, maybe (laughs) that's that's I, I
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then. All right. So the next piece of news from that big THR piece is that the Batman 2 is in the works. Reeves is hard at work on it. He's working on the Penguin series. He's working on the Arkham Asylum series. He's also talking to writers about movies about Gotham City rogues. The THRP specifically name checks. I don't know if they were just using it as like examples of Batman villains or like actual villains that are projects are being developed around. Scarecrow, Clayface, and Professor Pegg. As the uh, foremost Batman expert on this pod, I will tell you right now the two out of three of those are horrendous choices. <laughs> uh, Clayface could be incredibly tragic. There is a Batman the animated series episode where Robin falls in love with like a teen, with like a child girl who's like lost and can't recall her past. Turns out she was a piece of Clayface, and it's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking shit. And it's effectively like a body horror film. So I could see that working. Professor Pig is basically like a seven, kind of. He, he, he's a newer villain. I think he's been uh, invented in the last 15 years or so. His most prominent featuring thus far, I think was in Arkham Origins. Night. Um, but he's a very like seven-esque character. So I don't know how you build a film around that unless you want the audience to hate him. Mm-hmm. Clayface, you could actually empathize with. Then of course, there's also the comedic version of him that we've seen in the Harley Quinn cartoon that we love, which of course they wouldn't do that on a film. And then the third is uh scarecrow, which we've seen enough of. I think yes. the obvious choice here is freeze. I don't understand how they're going to go down this route and not go with freeze. Maybe because Matt Reeves, world is too grounded, but how are you guys feeling about this tidbit about the bet? Like the Batman corner, that they're starting to build out, which I personally have always wanted. Interconnectivity is one thing, but I don't want to see Batman fighting Green Lantern. I want to see Batman fighting Firefly and Freeze and Joker. I want a Batman universe, and that seems to be the route that they're going. So for me, I'm in. I, I think if they're not using
3: Mr. Freeze, it's because he's in the movie, the Batman the sequel, or want, or he has plans for him. In his own capacity. Uh again, we don't know if that these names are specifically what they're developing. It's it's up in the air right now. But like you said, Scarecrow, we've seen a lot of I mean, even Batman begins and then the Dark Knight. He was involved in that a little bit. And then, you know, Arkham Knight itself, he was uh the main villain of that game. Uh so he's he's had his time, uh, I think to, in, in mainstream Batman. Uh, I would like to see some lesser known characters like Clayface. I think that's the most interesting of the three you named. That's a cool character. Body horror. He was in, in the Arkham games a little bit, but almost like a side character that was kind of a, more of a plot device by the end of Arkham City than anything else.
1: By- you know, Cade, you'll like this. They could build a very Sandman and Spider-Man 3-esque story. Yes, it, absolutely. It, it's a, like you could, make, you could really feel for him and put yourself in his Clay yeah. shoes and be like, damn, I kind of get it, you know? Yeah,
3: there's a very interesting route you can go. It doesn't even have to be like everyone is part of this grand universe or anything. But you can just do like an anthology story of like, here's this Batman villain. You may or may not know them. We're going to give you an hour, hour and a half about them. And maybe they'll show up in in a movie later, you know, as a character in Arkham Asylum or whatever. There's a lot of interesting possibilities you can take this. And I'm glad they're not just doing what Nolan did, where we're going to use three Batman villains. And then we are leaving the rest... Just completely untouched because I didn't really like that part of those movies. <laughs> yeah, B? I,
2: I just I have to wait and see. I mean, by this time next year, we will have three on-screen Batman between <laughs> Robert Pattinson, Ben Affleck, and Michael Keaton. You know, those two returning in the Flash. So I, I don't know. Like, are you going to have in one corner, uh, you know, the did the two DCEU Batman? Fighting Green Lantern, like you said. And then in the well, other. Well, I corner, think
1: that don't you think this power change is the uh the final death blow to the whole Keaton thing?
2: I, I have no idea because it changes <laughs> literally every week a new report comes out. And over the last 10 years, even when it was under relatively the same ownership, it still changed You're every right. week. Right. So I I have no idea what to expect. I literally don't. <laughs> I think Batman works great. As its own standalone universe, as we saw with Nolan, as we're seeing with Reeves, I also understand just from a, a commercial business standpoint, yeah, they probably want Batman interacting with some of their other popular characters at some point in some way. Again, I, I'm of the belief because if someone says, "Oh, this is so and so is unadaptable," this is this is idea could never work. I'm of the belief that every idea ever can work if you just get the right creatives involved. That's obviously easier said than done. Huge high degree of difficulty. But I'm willing to just go with whatever the best idea is, whether that's more Robert Pattinson standalone, whether that's some, I don't know, campy Michael Keaton return. I I don't know. Let me see it. let's, Let's decide what the new groundwork is once they actually have some foundational pillars up that are Warner Brothers Discovery and not former Warner Media. Then we can kind of start anticipating and strategizing moving forward from our angle.
1: He is here to rain on y'all's fucking parade. Sorry.
2: <laughs> no, I, I, I'm not. Funny. Uh, no, no. Uh,
1: listen, man. I think it's the right take. I've I've had the show improve approach with them for years, but you're taking that in a macro sort of, I don't even care about their announcements because there's no guarantee that they come to fruition in the first place.
2: Like I, I'm, you know, from these announcements that happened this week, like James Gunn taking on more titles is cool. And the Batman two is really cool. That, that's really what gets me excited. Everything else. I'm like, let's, let's wait and see.
1: Okay. And then, yeah, just that point, James Gunn, uh, it's possible he could take on one, if not more new DC films. We don't know what they are. And then on top of Peacemaker season two. Uh, great. Cool. Yeah. That's about it for my brain.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I like James Gunn. I don't know what else he would take on, but he seems to have a, a knack for finding characters that aren't getting a lot of love and doing something really cool with them, so.
2: He loves his misfits.
3: Yes, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to see wherever he takes whatever character that might be.
1: All right, let's swing over to a different genre entirely, and that is horror. Halloween ends hit theaters in Peacock. Last weekend? Did pretty decent business despite the fact that it was on Peacock. I think it made like forty million dollars in its opening weekend, mm-hmm. but people fucking hate it. Which <laughs> comes after people. This comes after people hated the last one. Yeah. They also entrusted director David Gordon Green and with The Exorcist, which feels like which the, they want to do a
2: trilogy for. Which yeah.
1: feels like trading for Russell Wilson at this point. So Ooh. I am curious, Kate. You sent us a wonderful sort of summary of the films and what's gone wrong. Spare us the summary of the films, but please indulge us on what's gone wrong.
3: As far as I understand this was planned as a two part series. And then somewhere along the way, they were like, let's take it one at a time. And then they released the first movie and they're like, all right, two more, two more, we're going to do three total. And so if this was just Halloween and Halloween ends, maybe there's a chance this could work a little bit better without this middle piece. That's kind of just like fucking nothing. Uh, It's just, it's literally just pure fan service of like Michael Myers goes on a killing spree and that's cool. And then they try this heavy handed message. I'm not going to go into it. We're not talking about Halloween kills fucking terrible movie. Don't watch it. But uh, Halloween ends is like this weird attempt to create something entirely different while also tying up the loose ends of this 40 year saga which only consists of four movies total because they only consider the very first halloween movie canon in this time it's a fucking disaster so basically michael myers is like not in the movie very much there's a whole nother villain i'm not going to spoil it for you guys but That is
1: such a having literally never seen a single one of those films. That sounds fucking stupid to me.
3: He's like the whole point is like he brings evil and like he's like like not possessing literally, but like manifesting evil on this town. And it's like, cool, conceptually, I like that on paper. You are throwing this in in the ninth inning of a very long game it's like does not make
2: any sense all of that says to me that like maybe (laughs) a film franchise that revolves around you know just a couple characters shouldn't go for 13 movies you know completely correct It's, it's just like i understand the need to recycle libraries and recycle familiar ip because it's hard to sell new original concepts and audiences vote with their wallets and we often don't go see new original concepts but, maybe give it like a bigger break, or, or maybe try to introduce something new, but like thirteen films for a, a what is essentially a three or four kind of star franchise, not like Marvel, where we have a hundred characters. Like you just run out of steam. It's natural. How it really, could anyone expect anything else?
3: It, I mean, the the premise of the first movie is a guy mindlessly goes around killing people. and that's the that's the scary part is like it could happen to anybody. And then they've tried to expand it on a, on a much bigger level. And if you had started this little rebooted trilogy with Halloween ends, I think you work this idea in better because you are starting out on this new foot. You are not building a trilogy right. around this conflict between Laurie Strode and Michael Myers and hyping up this big finale at the end because all of the marketing is like Captain America Civil War type posters of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode (laughs) staring each other in the face. And you're like, Halloween ends. It's, it's the final showdown. And then that's not the movie until the last 15 minutes. And it's only because they're like, Oh shit, we made a completely different movie. And now we got to We got to deliver on that. So I told someone, I'm like, if they had made Halloween ends, Halloween kills, Halloween in that order, this trilogy would have been much more interesting, and I think it would have done the exact uh, intended story that they wanted in a, in a better way. And I don't know where they went wrong. But
1: are you <laughs> suggesting that people should watch
2: them like that?
3: Uh, I mean it. It, it doesn't make any sense now. Like you would have going to full
2: machete order like the Star Wars films. <laughs> yeah,
3: you would have to like you know, rearrange certain bits and pieces of this story for that to make sense. But if they had approached it that way, I think it would have been smarter to, to start out on, you know, we come back 40 years later, Michael Myers is not necessarily the main villain. This is other guy. And then Michael Myers comes back at the end and it's like, Oh, evil is really here I think that would have been more interesting right yeah
1: yeah okay sorry
3: yeah yeah so
1: I went from I mean I wanted I I heard that the first one was really good and then I never like I'm not really a slasher film guy so I never really cared but the pure and utter vitriol around this film has made me want to watch these past three more than any piece of commercial or review that I've seen
3: they're they're fascinating from just like a hollywood perspective of like how did danny mcbride and david gordon green the guy Wait, why did he, write
1: Express, it? Yeah. did he write it yeah
3: you didn't know yeah. that yeah danny mcbride so- wrote all three of them
1: that's fucking wild yeah really
3: and so he's the lone like, writer yeah it started out as david gordon green and, and danny mcbride and it has expanded now i think there's four or five writers on this one which tells okay. you something wow. probably went wrong along the way <laughs>
1: What a mess. All right. uh, Before we take a quick break, do either of you all have thoughts on the She-Hulk finale that you want to share? I'll say that I thought it was a bit jarring how disconnected it felt, but I also really appreciate the swing. I thought that the meta-ness is a high wire act, right? And I'm sure some people were really turned off by her bursting through the Disney plus screen and walking into the MCU lot and speaking to Kevin but we got to pick what we want here, right? Do we want to get on the MCU's case for giving us Black Widow and giving us the same shit over and over again? Or do we want to see them take swings? She-Hulk was an absolute swing. It was more sitcom than it was MCU. As I've said a few times, I think it succeeds as a sitcom. As an MCU property, I just a complete carnival of ideas and lights and sounds and just a, a mess, but in a fun mess, you know? So... I found myself rather enjoying it. I think it's one of my favorite MCU Disney Plus series. You know, it's not quite in the WandaVision Loki tier. Just a bit below that. I think that speaks to the overall quality of the experiment so far. Uh, if you guys got any She-Hulk thoughts, now's your time. The only thing I would say is like, it does kind of
3: pose a question of if She-Hulk can jump out of her own show and, and rewrite the ending, what does that mean for like Secret Wars? right like i i know they wouldn't actually do that but it's like you kind of put that question in people's mind of like can she just be like and kang fucking exploded
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's it well, I know, that is a the fourth wall and deadpool can break the fourth wall and they meet in a future team-up movie is that an eight wall break
3: ah that's a fascinating thought yeah so
2: it I mean, computer just shut off and kept. No, that—that
1: is actually—and then cutscene to Matthew McConaughey behind the bookcase in in Interstellar, (laughs) and and that is what the eighth wall is. That's. that's, I like your imagination. (laughs)
0: All
1: right, well, let's take a quick break, and when we return, House of the Dragon episode nine, The Green Council.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: All right, and we are back. House of the Dragon Episode 9, The Green Council. B, I gotta be honest, after basically coming into last week's pod round ago, I was pretty let down by the come down of this week's episode. Maybe it was the sort of the context of having the series high point last week. I think that this is maybe the series low point thus far. The gist of the episode, which in theory should be quite exciting. It's a, as you taught me, coup. Um... <laughs> basically the green council which we learned, and this was a tough week for my boy otto i'm gonna have a hard time defending him now basically he's been planning this whole thing for years yeah years um (laughs) the uh town your daddy worked for me for years
0: (laughs) years
1: um (laughs) nice so yeah point being is otto has been planning to install aegon as king all before a dying viserys incepted the idea into allison's brain and to do so they sort of unroll a four to five point plan they secure the treasury they outright murder the treasurer they lock Renes in her room to nullify her political and dragonal power. <laughs> they demand bent knees from the houses who previously supported Rainera. They find Aegon, and then they crown him. You and I, once again, are going to differ on this a bit, because when I texted you, I said, B, do we agree that this one was not that good? You were like, no, I actually liked it until the end. So as we normally do, big picture thoughts.
2: I like scheming and plotting and the political machinations, and I like, schemes within plots within the same faction which this was because we see father and daughter really start to diverge so i, I thought that was interesting i think logistically is a little bit of a nightmare in universe like they could just gather up all the lords and uh all the lords of, of westeros that they needed to kind of convince because they're not all at king's landing at once but they all just happen to be there and yet you know, Rhaenyra and her family dips like in the middle of the night, right before Viserys. it's just a little weird. They're like all back on Dragonstone, but everyone else is there. Um, but that, that's, you know, that's nitpicking. Otherwise, I, I think thematically this was Thrones doing what it does. And that is complementing big spectacle action pieces with like, hey, everyone's a corrupt piece of shit who wants power. Yeah, I just
1: felt it was a a few one too many oohs and ahs, right? We got the Eric twin betraying his twin. We found out that Aegon has got bastard kids all over. We found out that Laris is a foot freak. We find out that Otto has been scheming for years, which I guess we know, but this was like a more aggressive confirmation of that. Like he literally has a PowerPoint of like, all right, here's step one, two, three, four. So I just found it to be after a week of like, of showing, not telling of one of the most powerful throne scenes I've ever seen of being a man walking from point A to point B to sort of digress into uh, what I found to be just uh, what are those things that they would build cars on. And sort line. of like, yes, just an assembly line of like shallow reveals that they think are kind of like, oh, ah, but really it just felt like them sort of building in false surprise.
2: I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that because, you know,
1: like Aegon having bastard kids in that child fight club like all right we get he's a piece of shit like did we really need that
2: well i think they are so what season one has really been is a lot of throat clearing for what the actual conflict is and i think they are planting seeds and setting up what will be overarching storylines in season two i I don't i don't remember anything about Aegon's bastards i don't even know if he has bastards in the thing but in terms of the political scandal and 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 conflict that we're seeing right now that that is going to complicate his claim particularly against But Bernier, so you're so think,
1: saying that you think that that is a legitimate Chekhov's bastard
2: I, I mean I think it could be I, I don't know but I think in lieu of Ned Stark getting his head cut off in the penultimate episode of season one of Game of Thrones they are establishing the floor and the foundational pillars of what is going to be the actual meat of this story because really the story starts now that's really what the Dance of Dragons is, what the Targaryen Civil War is. It starts now and everything else is preamble to put the pieces in place.
1: Right. Like I just thought today, like I think the series by the time season one is over, they will have introduced nine dragons. And it occurred to me that we have to see all of them die. So, like, you do get the sense that in the sort of the old Thronesian way, they're spreading out the pieces and now it's finally starting. But Doesn't isn't that sort of counterintuitive to the tweet that you put out, which was half joking, half serious? But like, do you legitimately think Laris Strong just sticking the queen has hot feet? Like, like are you buying that? (laughs) Are are you buying that beyond a non-meme level?
2: And anyone who doesn't know, in in the books, Laris's motivations are are largely unknown. People kind of Which is so
1: compelling though. When you
2: told me that, I was like, that's sick. People don't know why he did the things he did. And then obviously in this episode, you know. Guy gets off on feet, which let is... let. But don't
1: you find that to be such a cheap fucking like? Hey, check out this twist. He likes I, fucking feet.
2: we we'll see here. Look, I I, I think we diverge in interesting way because last week's episode, yes, it had the two great scenes, all centered around Viserys, the walk to the throne and the dinner scene, which I love. <laughs> Other than that, I thought it was much of the same. We didn't learn anything new about the characters. The episode started and ended with everyone in the same exact position. And it was more of an extended stage play from episode eight, but I thought a less compelling one outside of the Viserys, uh, uh, outside of the, the two main Viserys scenes. Here we have legitimate prop, pro, uh, plot propulsion going forward. We have is going to be the major conflict we have battle lines drawn and we have schisms within their own factions which we see with you know uh allison and her father i like the ends
1: Uh, yeah i like the ends i'm just not crazy about the means
2: yeah i mean i i can i can kind of understand that i i personally think this was more consistent than last week even though last week obviously had the best highs
1: like so just put yourself in my shoes when laris appears in Allison's private bedroom when she appears to be tucking in for the night, I'm thinking like, oh shit, is the queen about to die? Like, I'm really jacked up for a dramatic, tense twist. And then I get, oh yeah, he's got a foot thing. Like,
2: but that's I, what know. I'm saying. So it's like, uh, elements of last week's episode didn't work for me and elements did. I think it's the same thing here. It's yeah. like, yeah, I, I'm not like defending the the foot fetish. Like, I think it's funny but I, I don't know how, how substantive that is. But it seems to me like We're saying, you know, different things work, different things didn't. Just on on opposite ends.
1: Let's uh, dive into our recap now after King Viserys' death. The small council plots to crown Prince Aegon as king. Sir Criston kills Lord Beesbury, the treasury, when he objects to Rhaenyra being usurped, while Lord Commander Harold Westerling resigns as a result. Sir Otto delays announcing Viserys' death to fortify the council's position, and he demands the nobles fealty. Now, while I may not have been crazy about this from a plotting standpoint, from a technical standpoint, I thought it was incredible. It reminded me of the season six finale where there's that, that extended King's Landing sequence, where they're taking you to all points of view, powerful kings and queens, slum-dwelling common folk, and with this sort of building and tension piano score. So I thought that the first 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes from a technical standpoint were fantastic. And when you're able to remind me of one of Thrones' most iconic sequences, that is, of course, a win.
2: Yeah, Raman Jawani, who who scored that episode that you're talking about and scored this one and who d- created the Game of Thrones theme, just Guy's throwing fastballs, man. He's just juicing time. it all the time. Really respect that guy. He's the new Michael Giacchino in, in my eyes. And, Seriously, yeah. And, and so the beginning was great. I, I just, I think the the tension between Sir Sir Kristen Cole and um, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard was really effective because You took
1: the words right out of my mouth. I'm going to let you rip, but I'm just going to say I agree. I thought that that was the most compelling part of the whole council scene.
2: Yeah, it's it's so interesting because a Kingsguards are supposed to be uh, out above politics, it's not supposed to matter what the situation is, you're supposed to stay out of it and b, it's a lifetime appointment you can't really resign so I just love that he was willing to do that in that moment given the context, and the fact that they were drawing swords against each other to an extent, it just shows you how fractured. The not only the small conflict is and how much it's going to mushroom across the entire continent of Westeros and, and turn people against one another that you would think is on the same side. So it's a good microcosm for, for the rotting soul of, of this country when the purest, noblest, most honorable collection of people is fracturing. Now, do you think
1: Sir Harold resign? I mean, the final straw that breaks the camel's back is Otto asking him to form a Kingsguard team to go up to Dragonstone to murder Rhaenyra and her kids. And he's like, no, fuck this shit. I quit. But so we agree that that is sort of what gets him to commit to do it. But I also think that's underlined by sort of him seeing in Sir Kristen that like the King's Guard is not what it once was or what he wants it to be. And now this guy is basically a personal pet of the queen and he does his best to sort of like, I think Harold may realize if I don't stop him now, I'm not sure who's going to. And I think that that's why he pulls his sword. And then once I think he realizes that he's not going to be able to kill Cole in that moment, Through a combination of being disgusted with what the Kingsguard is becoming with the likes of Cole and being just in a vacuum, morally objected to what Otto asked him to do. It just he's that balance of common folk and high folk that you could relate to in that perfect window of that's my fucking dude right there.
2: You're really, really going to like Sir Duncan the Tall when we when we get to the Duncan Egg adaptation that's in development. You're really going to like him.
1: Okay, fuck yeah. Because I was a big, braun was my favorite Thrones character, right? Like he's a mercenary and that is not what Sir Harold is, but it's like, this is a guy who murders, but he does so with a code. And I just really, really enjoy that. And then as you touched on on the top, in this Council scene, and this is a theme that they really start to hammer home throughout the entire hour is that you finally start to see a disconnect between Allison and Otto's willingness to sort of wade into the proverbial darkness, which I think is going to be probably one of the defining storylines of this series from here on out.
2: Yeah, it's just so. So, this is also something that's a little irksome. I, I'm not saying it should have gone differently. It's just at the end of um, episode eight, they make a huge deal. Uh, Otto makes a huge deal, but like, "Wow, daughter, I didn't know you had the 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 gusto." That dog. Exactly. I didn't know
1: you had that dog in you.
2: And now, understandably, it's kind of flipped, and and she's she's very reluctant to take the 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 murderous steps that her father wants to. And and I'm glad because obviously we don't want people just killing willy nilly. But it's like, why make it such a big deal then, just to kind of pull the rug out from under us? It's a, it's a little inconsistent, but I also understand that that plays into their uh the growing wedge between them it's just i don't know i I didn't feel like this episode was in this moment as tight as it could be or or perhaps episode eight
1: isn't that antithetical to thrones though isn't this when they should be throwing their gas
2: yeah i mean i'm not saying plot wise like you know they shouldn't be doing this shouldn't be be doing that i'm just saying from like a writing standpoint it's just like okay we were here now we're here in the span of an episode
1: all right, moving on to the next big plot beat. Queen Alicent fails to gain Princess Rhaenys' support and then therefore keeps her captive. When Aegon goes into hiding, Otto has Kingsguard brothers Sir Eric and Sir Eric search the city, while Alicent in turn sends Kristen and Aemond. Missaria, possibly the White Worm, informs Otto that Aegon is hiding in the Grand Sept, which... I need sort of a breakdown of the logistics of him like living in that tomb or whatever the fuck was going on there. Um, because- it looks like
2: a cartel, like smuggling situation.
1: Like, <laughs> what where- the fuck? This guy's the fucking king. Like what? Dude, just go be king. Um, informs him that he is hiding in the Grand Sep. The brother's Eric, Nab, Aegon, but loses him to Kristen and Amund after a fight in which one of the Eric's betrays the other. B?
2: I don't know if I would call it betrayal. I think it's it's him not agreeing with the direction of, of this government, you know, of this country. Was he
1: the one who asked, like, oh, you were on board with all Aegon's fealties?
2: Dude, I don't, I don't know which one's Eric and which one's Eric. Are Dude, the face me? that
1: you just gave me, oh my God. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, I don't know which one's which. I just like that, like, again, like, just like the Kingsguard, this is an exact, you know, replica of, of other Kingsguard who are brothers, they're twins and they can't even be on the same page.
1: That was the meanest thing you've ever done to me.
2: <laughs> I mean, come on, That's a silly question. You're like, was it this one or that? Well, no,
1: one? from a plotting standpoint. I don't like is know. that the is 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 that the line that we should be drawing?
2: All, all I know is that was hilarious when he's just like, I'm, you know, he's like, "Help," and he's just like he just turns around he's nah. like, I'm "Out." Yeah, yeah, he's like, "No, nah, I'm out." But again,
1: you thought
2: both. and and I, again, it's it's something that I think when I was watching it the first time, I'm like, "Wow, the Kingsmen, the King's Guards, are really at the center of this thematic accident. They are representative of what is going to spread across this country far more. And I really liked how they used uh, they they use specificity to kind of launch into universality. Really well done that part.
1: Yeah. So maybe my main takeaway from the stanza is the conversation between Allison and Rainie's. Who Allison seems to think that while maybe women can't purely rule, they could guide the men who do. And Rhaenys, total savage, basically is like, bitch, prove it. You know what I mean? Because she, I think for the first time, Allison is confronted with her mistaking her ambitions for morals, right? When Rhaenys asks her, like, have you never thought of yourself on the Iron Throne? You could see Allison think to herself, well, of course I have. But only because that would be for the good of the realm. But I like the idea of Allison being confronted by the idea of, hey, what if you just took over? Like, wouldn't that be better? And so I said last week, I think that she's the most volatile piece in this whole thing because she is the mother of the king, the widow of the former king, and the daughter of the hand. She's got the King's Guard at her pawn. So really, whichever direction she chooses to go is going to sway not just Team Green, but the entirety of the show. So I like the idea of Rhaenys laying the foundations of the idea in her head. You don't need your dad. You could do this shit on your own. And that would actually maybe be best. Yeah. And then they sort of underline that with... Hey, not only could she intellectually be the best ruler, but a point that I've made a few times, they show that she has genuine compassion. Granted, she did try to cut out a kid's eye, but when she stands over Viserys' body, who was a sweet man, but basically did nothing but rot next to and impregnate her for 20 years. So I can't imagine the love was that deep, but she still cried for his death regardless. So Alicent, while I am finding Team Green to be more and more reprehensible her actions last week and this week and at the end of this episode continue to build her stature and makes the team green versus team black but more specifically allison versus Rainera conflict more compelling to the extent i'm starting to get the feeling that allison is going to be the one to eventually have her own dad killed
2: Maybe I I don't know how that goes, but to your point, I liked how Rainice asks her. You know, haven't you imagined yourself on throne? And and that look confirms like, I could I could do well with power. I like that, and that's going to be important for our a discussion we're going to have about the end of this episode.
1: Okay, all right, let's move on then. Otto and Allison argue about to handle the succession before Lord Larry Strong warns Allison about the white worm spies within the Red Keep, including her lady-in-waiting, L- L- Liana, which was what? Basically, like, the midwife?
2: Uh, like, her aide or her, her handmaid. Who, like, I, takes you know. care of
1: the babies and shit. Yeah, yeah. No, okay, not the one uh, who
2: takes care of the babies. I think they're just the one that, like, helps her dress and is always, like, you know... the, gotcha. it, was the it was the one with red hair, the that one. Gotcha.
1: Okay. Uh, So, as a result... Allison has Laris burn the white worm's house. Aegon, on his way to being crowned king, expresses that he has no desire to rule, but Allison giving him the cat's paw dagger while also calling him an imbecile in a hilarious moment convinces him otherwise. As I've said, it's a tough week to defend my boy Otto Hightower, and this scene is an encapsulation of such. He made the point that I've been making on this pod for six plus weeks. The only problem is I'm making it as a podcaster about a hypothetical fictional character. He's making it about his own daughter. He basically says, long story short, yeah, I might have made you my pawn, but I also made you queen. So we're cool, right? And she's just like, well, and he was more or less like, what young girl wouldn't want to be queen? And she was like, well, I have no fucking idea because you made me do it from Jump Street. So at that point, I was like... Yeah, she's right. That's a blow to my auto stock. So look, yeah. have only been uh,
2: saying it all season to you.
1: I know. I know. Tough. I know you have, you have, but look, man, I plant the flag and I stick with it. So, okay. so, but yeah, I just, I am enjoying the division between the two. I found his, our hearts have always been, there's something weird going on with Otto. The way he says, you look so much like your mom in this light. And um, our hearts have always been one. And, as you wish. There's just something, while I found him cerebral at first, I'm now finding him creepy. And that is never an adjective you ever want to use to describe anybody. So yeah, this was a tough scene for me. While I enjoy what it means for the show, I don't enjoy what it means for my boy, Otto.
2: And it's just so funny to me because forget forget morality. Let's just talk about manipulation and getting what you want. It is so much easier for Otto in his position to be like, I don't agree with anything my daughter's saying. I'm just using her to get our power. But it's so easy for him to be like, okay, well, to continue accomplishing that while we know that we got to take out Rhaenyra and her family, why don't I validate some of her feelings? Why don't I I include her in on the decision making, even if we don't actually take her advice? Why don't I make her feel like she's being heard and valued instead of just dismissing her and basically walking all over it? It, It's so much easier for these characters to get what they want if they just play the game instead they like kind of drop the facade and they're like nah i'm in control here you're dumb like it's it's just so silly that a little bit of acting will go so far for their plots and schemes
1: any thoughts on the feet thing before we move on to the final piece here
2: i don't kink shame you won't Do what you gotta do. I don't kink shame. Everybody out is, there, Just like what you like.
1: It is very funny that you brought that up, because we will be <laughs> returning to that later. All right, King's Landing citizens are herded into the Dragonpit, where Otto announces Viserys' death and crowns Aegon as king. After Sir Eric frees Rhaenys, she enters the Dragonpit dungeons for her dragon, Maelyse. On top of Maelyse, she breaches the hall, causing devastation, murdering dozens and confronting the royal usurpers only to then spare them and leave on Dragonback. B, you have some problems with this scene that you already vocalized both publicly and privately, so let her rip.
2: Yeah, okay. So essentially, long story short... Rainies can end the war before it begins right then and there. And I said as much on Twitter while acknowledging that there were other factors at play, but lit- you know, media literacy and, and reading literacy is obviously very low because I got so many people in my mentions so angry with so many things that were so stupid. Number one, the big argument against Rainy's doing that is that kinslaying is really looked down upon in Westeros, and is kind of the worst mortal sin you can commit. 100% true. Completely understand where you guys are coming from. Not arguing that that Rainy uh, doesn't care about that or, or anything. I'm just saying she knows full well that the Greens are planning a mass kinslaying effort, effort of their own. She knows, as we just discussed, that Allison does have a lust for power and wants to go after it. And the fact is, she bursts through the, the sept floor killing probably hundreds of innocent citizens only to not kill the people that again would would end the war before it began, even though we know from the, the trailer for next week's episode that she is going to write Rainiera to Dragonstone to warn her so she knows that there will be a war. Uh, the other thing people said that uh, killing all of them wouldn't prevent a war from happening. well, you know what? I don't know a single example in history of when you wiped out the entire leadership segment of an opposing force and they were able to marshal resources and coordinate and still survive. They didn't.
1: And that's also ignorant because for basically 20 years this entire thing has been driven by two people. The high towers. That's it.
2: Exactly. And Rainice is obviously the smartest of cookies that that multiple characters have admitted even Allison herself. So we know she knows the the kind of grand Uh, overarching plays here so it's, it's weird to see that and finally the reason why I think overall this was a big splashy moment created for script necessity and completely out of character within the universe if she wasn't going to kill them Why make the statement of crashing through the floor to to announce yourself and announce your uh, allegiance? Why not escape quietly on your dragon as you were clearly able to do? It it made no sense other than to end the episode on an exclamation point that I felt was very unearned and, and very concocted for the purposes of drama.
1: Well, so that was sort of the macrocosm of what I've been saying that this all felt like cheap manufactured drama. And this was sort of the epitome of that. I will just point out that House of the Dragon writer Sarah Hess, per THR, said that Rhaenys let Allison and the Green Council live, quote, because it's not her war. Uh, then, then she said that the rest what? of the casualties don't matter because in the Game of Thrones world, quote, civilians don't count. Second part is fine. First part <laughs> saying that not her war is ridiculous, considering 15 minutes prior they just held her captive
2: and an episode prior she said i'm going to stand on my own and be neutral and then ultimately decided to align herself with with rainier and accept her pr- her proposal of of marriage so she has shoes side, and, and it is a war and i'm sorry but innocent lives should count and i'm sorry just to go back to the kinslaying, one thing i forgot yes kinslaying is really 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 bad we understand that that's horrible but as we learn, again, in 50 years from now-ish, Brynden Rivers, who becomes the Three-Eyed Raven, he's current, he's uh, serving as Hand of the King, and it's during one of the Blackfire rebellions. Basically, his half-brother is trying to take the throne. He invites his half-brother to King's Landing to negotiate and then just has him killed. And he is sent to the Wall to, send to, 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 to take the Black as punishment for kinslaying. But all of Westeros does recognize that Tactically, it was the right move, and he saved thousands of lives by doing it that way. Which may not be great. Again, there may be consequences, but was the right tactical move. Like, again, that happens in the future from where we are, but we just know in the history of this happens every time. Sorry, that's fine. Just know in the history of 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 Westeros that usually it's the right move. So, so Rainie could have maybe sacrificed her her reputation to save an entire continent and the people she aligned herself with. And yes, I'm, I'm enraged at this because this was just such a dumb ending.
1: All right, I think that's a perfect place to cap it. We'll move on to our final category of the week, A Song of Rising and Falling. Who are you rooting for this week? Brandon, you're number three.
2: I mean, I, I kind of have like one central one. <laughs> and I'll come up with some extra ones, but my one central one is just as everybody was rooting for Clagane Ball for Game of Thrones, we have to be rooting for Eamon and Damon. To be going head to head at some point. I just cannot wait to see that. Love that. So much fun.
1: Mond Bowl. All right. My number (laughs) three. My number three is back to your kink shaming point. I literally wrote down. I am rooting for Laris to be kink shamed and then murdered. That's it.
2: Okay. Well, then my number two, bouncing off that theme, I am rooting for Sir Kristen Cole to have his face beaten in viciously. (laughs) What a just horrible little. He will though.
1: He you know that they're making him like he's gonna do some gruesome, awful shit along the way. Like I'm sure we haven't even seen the deepest of his depth yet, but you just know when he dies, it's gonna be horrific. Yeah. Uh, my number two thing that I'm rooting for this week, Otto Hightower down a spot from last week. Cause look, this was a real tough week to defend him, and so I'm not gonna try. And that's that. <laughs> uh
2: so I, I can't necessarily root for this because it's it's now already happened. It is, you know, history but I I want to express sympathy. That'll be my rise of my sympathy for this great sept of Baylor, which has now had... A dragon crashed through it and then been blown up by Cersei 200 years later. Just, you know, tough, tough go of it. Sept of Baelor, sorry, man.
1: Uh, All right, my number one thing that I'm rooting for this week, I've got two. I've got the King's Landing Workers Union. Should be a great time to get work in the city. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. And then finally, for the resting soul of Viserys, who's probably so stoked to be dead.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he he deserved a a respite from his pain and, and peace at last.
1: All right. Thank you for joining me, Brandon. Let's swing over to my interview with Paul Fee, the director of films such as Bridesmaids, The Heat, Spy, and the upcoming Netflix film, The School for Good and Evil, which hits the streamer on October 19th. Okay, folks, today I am joined by Paul Feig, director of films such as Bridesmaids, The Heat, Spy, and his latest film, The School for Good and Evil, which you could stream on Netflix beginning on October 7th, Run Let's <laughs> run that back, October 19th. Yes. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today, sir. Hey, thanks, Eric. It's good to, good to be on here. I appreciate it. So let's let's start simple. What is What is your personal relationship to f- fairy tales, and do you have a favorite one? And if so, why?
0: Well, my relationship to fairy tales is I don't like them. <laughs> I never I never did when I was a kid. I just for some reason they freaked me out and they were either too scary or they were too moralistic or they were too didn't feel connected to my life, you know what I mean? So so I've always <laughs> been weird about fairy tales. So but that's why when this script came in it kind of felt like the right script for me to do because this is a, it's so much about deconstructing fairy tales and deconstructing the lessons of fairy tales uh, so i think that's what really drew me into it uh, um, and i'm hard-pressed to tell you a favorite fairy tale because i really i just i just never i never liked them
1: <laughs> well did your work on this give you a newfound appreciation for them Did you find yourself by, because of the way that the film is built, having to go back and read these stories that you perhaps didn't enjoy much as a kid, but now seeing them in a new light?
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it almost reinforced my my feeling about story <laughs> tales because because we literally that is the message of this movie is like guys, it's not good and evil like it's 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 a mix and everything is is blurred, you know, and and people aren't just one thing or the other, you know, and I think that's what has gotten us into so many problems in in the world now is we kind of go oh they're bad and we're good and you know we hate them and take them down, you know, which I think. You know that kind of simplistic storytelling can have that blowback uh, by by making things into the, they are bad, we are good. Um, so I, anything I can do to to get rid of that in because I'm just I don't like seeing our world being like that and our country being like that right now.
1: I was just going to say, so I guess it could be called the, the School of the Gray area, but that's not as cool of a title. <laughs> hey,
0: yeah, that's a, that's a, not as much fun of a story to tell.
1: <laughs> so I'm curious about how, oh, beyond the script itself, your last two films were on a much smaller scale than yeah. this one. And I'm curious, after your experience with Ghostbusters, which I'm aware that your personal experience may be a lot different than sort of the, the public conversation that followed it. Yeah. After Last Christmas, and what was the one with uh, Blake Lively?
0: Oh, like simple favorite.
1: Yeah, so after sh- a much smaller scale of film filmmaking, you find yourself back in a grander world here. Yeah. Was that sort of a conscious decision to be like, I want to take a swing at this again? Walk me through your personal process of getting back to this sort of filmmaking.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I just I go to projects that that excite me really. And um, you know, I I had a lot of fun making Ghostbusters. I mean, obviously all the controversy around it was was a bummer, but uh I just had a great time. I love working with designers and artists and all that stuff. So but then, you know, when the script for Simple Favor came along, I was just like, oh, my God, this is the Hitchcock movie I've always wanted to make, you know? And so just went into it and, and loved it. And then when Emma Thompson sent me the script for Last Christmas, I was like, oh, man, I finally get to make my love story in London and show off London the way I always wanted to. So so I, I love them both, but at the same time, I love, I love stunts. <laughs> my favorite thing to do is, is, like, shoot stunts and figure it out with my team and all that. So... I was kind of going like, oh, these are really fun, but I, I wouldn't mind doing another bigger movie because um, I kind of want to work with the artists again, and I want to do stunts, and I want to do something bigger. But I, I wasn't... But I was just kind of looking for, you know, trying to figure out what, what I would write next and then always open to what's going to show up. And so when this one showed up... Honestly, it was my, my, my producing partner, uh, Laura Fisher, who runs my company, um, came and she goes, like, Netflix sent this over, and it's a fantasy thing. I was like, oh, I don't know, fantasy, I don't know if that's my genre. And she goes, well, just read it. I think you might like the script. And I just fell in love with the, the, the story, you know, and I love these two lead characters, Agatha and Sophie, and their friendship, and I thought it was such a beautiful friendship story and had a lot to say about, like we talked about earlier, good and evil, But then it was like, okay, so I love that, but like, oh, and this is the one I can actually get back to making a bigger movie, and I get to do what I've never gotten to do before, which is design a world from the ground up. You know, I mean, Ghostbusters was fun, but that was about, you know, things in our world that are, you know, outside of the normal. But this going like, wow, I can literally... You know, nothing in this book is based on anything real. You know, not even the town of Galvaldon where they start. That's, you know, it's a fictional town too. So that was like the moment of like, okay, my God, I got to do this because I love this story and I think I can really make it different uh, and build this world. But, you know, the one cautionary thing on it was like, oh no, just like with Ghostbusters, which has a rabid fan base, this is a property of books that has a rabid fan base. It's different because they've never been made into a movie yet. But, you know, it's something I had to go, like, okay, do I want to get back into that, that world of, of, you know, people who are rabid about a, about a property? But it felt like, again, since it wasn't based on a movie, a book, it felt a little bit more like a fun challenge to kind of come in and try to please them, but also please, you know, bring a new audience to this and get to do all this world building.
1: You touched on a few things that I was going to ask you about. So let's start with, when you're adapting a beloved novel, as you just touched on. Mm -hmm. What did you find the key to be striking the balance between a faithful adaptation, Mm -hmm. but also bringing your own spin and flair and style to the story? How'd you go about doing that?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a few things things factored factored into that. One is the book is so massive that you gotta figure out how to pare it down. When it came to me as a script, it had already been worked on for like six years, so they had done the initial paring down. But then I went through it, and it was like, oh, this thing. And then I read the books. It's like, oh, I, it would be kind of sad to not have this in there. Maybe we could horse trade this thing out for that. And then I kept, called Soman up, you know, and kept Soman very close, who wrote the books. And always consulted with him of, like, would the, what are the fans like? What would the fans be sad if they didn't have? Mm. What would they want to hear? And so was able to kind of figure that out, too. And some stuff, you know, that, that's very popular in the books we had to lose, we shot. But we just didn't have room for it in the film. Um, but it it was, it it was, the, the biggest part of the adaptation comes from how do you do the connective tissue to replace all the stuff you had to lose, you know? And so that's sort of the hardest thing of like making effectively being able to collapse this, but then find a new thing that, that makes sense that, that connects the two, but adds to it. You know, because there's things I wanted to add to it. Um, right. You know, the whole, like the, in the movie, the whole concept of blood magic. That's something that came, came up, you know, late in the, sort of the development. And I just liked it because it set us apart. Because the big fear was, like, let's not look like Harry Potter. Let's not, you know, mm. we're in a school for magic. So clearly, you know, you're already going to get the comparison. So with my design team and everything, it was like, how do we make this not look like Harry Potter? You know, and then yeah. a lot of work went into that.
1: So one of my favorite parts of the film is the your movie stars are just so clearly having a blast. Yeah. Charlize Theron, Carrie Washington, Michelle Yeoh, Lawrence Fishburne, they all seem like they're having so much fun. And when you've got movie stars like that who are just doing their thing, right? As a director, how do you facilitate that? Do you just sort of step back and say, y'all go ahead? Do you pick and choose your spots? I'm curious what your role in that is.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always balancing out. Does can I like extreme performances? I like extreme characters and extreme situations, but I don't like things that are extreme, and they feel fake or false. You know, so I my whole career has always been about how do I push these performances to where they hit the hit the the top of where they should be, but they don't go over it. Because there's a place you go like, I believe this, I believe this. And then you go past it and you're like, now nah, this is just stupid and it's a cartoon and, and I don't buy what anybody's doing. So, But if you don't go right to that level, then you're missing out on some fun. you know. And so everybody came in kind of with their idea of what these characters were. And, and I really respond to that. I, I never want to be the guys like, no, you're wrong, it's this. It's like whatever they're going to bring to it, that's why I hired them. And then it's really for me to create a situation on the set where they can have a safer environment to feel they can try anything. And they can go too big sometimes, and they can go too small sometimes. And I, you know, it's my fun of going like, oh, try this, try this. And making sure I've got the levels. Because sometimes the performance, I think, is way too big. When I get in the editing room and we start stringing and everything dollies, together, yeah. it works. You know, you go yeah. like, oh, and I want their first instinct. So I'm never, I always, I don't even rehearse. Like, I was just like, let's just start rolling and see what happens. And sometimes, you know, the first take I'll be like, okay, that's not what I wanted. But I don't say that and just go, okay, cool, let's try this. And then I'll end up using the first take when I get in the editing room. Mm. Because it was their pure, their pure, you know, instinct to do it that way. And it, it's probably the most real to them.
1: So speaking of phenomenal cast, Paul, I want to swing back to Bridesmaids, which is now over 10 years old. I yeah. can't believe it, to be I honest know, with you. <laughs> when I'm talking to somebody who I th- who is involved in something that is generally considered to be great, I like to know at what moment or what stage they realize that, right? So... <laughs> It's been 10, 10 years since that film came out, and it's still largely considered to be one of the best comedies, basically, of my lifetime, the last 25 years or so. Mm-hmm. At what point did you realize, oh, man, this is
0: something special here? Well, I, you know, you never quite know. You know, it's funny. Like, you know, you, you, if, you if you're in process of making something and you go, like, this isn't going well, then then you have a, a disaster on your hands, you know? Okay. But you tend to go, like, you know, you try to make every moment good, and you got the right people, and you got the right cast and everything, so you're like, this is really fun. So every day, you're like, oh, we got really fun stuff. Like, I'm really happy with this. Um, but over the years, and back then, sometimes you go, like, oh, my God, the movie's going to be great, but you learn over the years, like got to see if it adds up. I always say that, you know, everybody I know is like, okay, it's good, but let's see if it adds up because individual scenes and individual takes on their own are great, and you string them together into a movie, and suddenly it's like, oh, my God, the thing that we thought was so funny is, like, death. <laughs> you know, like, I hate these characters. now. It's weird because it's this, you know, you're riding this sine wave of, of audience, you know, interest in, in how much you're pushing and pulling them. So it's a long-winded way to say... We knew it was going well, but we just had no idea if anybody was going to care and if it was going to kind of string together. And then, weirdly, what, you know, because we do a lot of test screenings over the, you know, like we did like nine or ten test screenings over the course of months putting it together and trading out jokes and all that. We never tested that great, you know, because... It was people are stupid. Well, you know what it is. It, it here's what it is. My my editor on that, Bill Kerr, had a he, he called it the greasy cheeseburger syndrome. And basically, you know, this the scene, everybody's favorite scene now, the dress shop scene. I mean, it would get screams of laughter. It would just tear the house down. And you're like, oh my god. But what happens then? It's like eating a greasy cheeseburger. Like you go, oh my god, this is so great. Ten minutes later, you're like. I shouldn't have eaten that. You know, that right. was terrible. Oh, I'm going to tell everybody that was the worst hamburger I ever had. You know, and so that's what happens. People you know, constantly say, what are your favorite scenes? What are your least favorite scenes? Least favorite scene, the dress shop scene. You know? And it's like, because yeah. people felt guilty at laughing at it. So, right, right, right. So we never scored above, like an 89 was our highest we ever got, which, you know, when I was doing The Heat. We would score like 96s and 98s wow. and all that kind of thing, you know, and Spy, too. So it's, yeah, so... We never quite knew. And honestly, the day of release, I was told the movie was going to bomb. Oh,
1: so... Wow! So you didn't have an idea what it was going to eventually become until it was out in the world.
0: No, we knew it worked with an audience. We knew we would like it it would tear the house down every time we screened it. But then those test scores would make you go like, "Oh wait, what? Maybe people aren't going to come see it." So, Um, so, oh, sorry. So you
1: may be somebody uniquely qualified to speak on this, and I'm genuinely not trying to like gotcha. I just think that you're someone good to ask. You talk about you weren't sure about bridesmaids connecting or people caring people care to the tune of almost $300 million.
0: Yeah. Now
1: right. you fast forward 10 plus years and bros flamed out pretty hard. Yeah. I saw bros. I in, I enjoyed it. Yeah. In, in Paul Feig's mind, what is the disconnect there? What, what How do you diagnose bridesmaids 10 years ago crushing yeah. bros 10 years on in a more quote-unquote
0: accepting society not hitting the same? It's impossible to say. I'm telling you, it's impo- I, I thought for sure that movie was going to go through the roof. I was dead certain. It's when they, funny, yeah, yeah, totally. And Billy's great, and all that. And, you know, and when I saw the predictions of eight to ten million for the weekend, I was like, oh, they're just completely lowballing it, so they're going to look really great. And then when it didn't work, I have no idea. I, 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 I if I could tell you, I would be a sage. Um, it just completely threw me that 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 didn't get the business that it did, and. I I literally just. Do you think it speaks to the state of the genre? Possibly, people are weird about comedy right now. I gotta say, and they have been for the last five years. Honestly, people get. I mean, I even I felt it happening literally when we were doing Bridesmaids. Like when you put out a trailer for a comedy, the vitriol you get online from it. People going like, this would always be this, like, oh, clearly all the best jokes are in the in the trailer. Like, people right. get really angry, you know, and it's like... <laughs> and I, we so us the movie here. <laughs> I know, and, and all my trailers, I always put in jokes that we cut out of the movie, just because I go, like, let's not waste all the mo- jokes that are in the movie. Let's just put the other ones in that we didn't use. But there's this weird hostility, and I, and I think people... Feel like they're being manipulated by comedy for some reason. I don't understand it. I mean, I mm. but I just see I've seen it and, happening.
1: And if you don't, then I'm not sure who does.
0: I know, and but I think it's gotten worse over the years. That's why, honestly, all my movies look like my my you know my most recent movies they're they're hidden comedies. You know, I I really try to put the comedy in the peanut butter. You know, for the dog, right? <laughs> you know, it, so like simple favor I think is one of my best comedies I've ever made. But it just you know we advertise it like a dark thriller, and that's kind. Out what it looks like but So I,
1: the headline to grab from this will be Paul Feig calls the audience
0: dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Feeding you so, pills.
1: <laughs> so I want to stick to this sort of genre that you love and have helped shepherd and shape. Uh to the same vein of Bridesmaids versus Bros, I also want to draw a line between The Office and sort of the in cable sitcom of today and that's Abbott
0: l Abbott l-, Ab- l-, Ab- yeah. l. That's I don't hard know yeah, <laughs> Abbott Elementary. There you go. Well done. There we go. <laughs>
1: a lot of people seem to ask, could The Office get remade today? But I think that that's the wrong thing to ask. Mm. I'm instead curious, is it possible for a sitcom to ever dominate the culture in the way your show did? Now, mm. Abbott is great. Yeah. Truly. But I, yeah. it just does not have that same cultural grasp. So what I want to ask you is, forget about remaking a show. Mm. Can a sitcom... Rise up to that level of cultural hold in this time.
0: Oh, it totally can. But but if you you got if you look at the history of The Office, because I was there from pretty much the beginning. Um, the first 6 episodes which i wasn't on that was you know they just did those as like a summer replacement i mean bombed i mean they nothing that show was was going for the trash can it was only the fact that uh kevin riley really saw something in it and he fought nbc to give it a second season
1: same thing with parks and rec
0: kind of as far yeah. as i know oh totally no very much so and then that second season you know when i came on it was it was in there what happened was we all had to look because Forty Year Old Virgin came out, right, and it was a big hit. And so everybody's like, "Wait, we've got Steve Carell, who's now on the biggest comedy hit of the year. Why isn't this not translating?" And they realize, "Oh, well, they were trying to make those first six so much like the Ricky Gervais version of The Office, where where Michael Scott is really mean. People don't American audiences do not like that. A British audience loves to see like a, a mean character taken down." American audiences are like, oh, I don't know what to do with this person. I don't like this person. So the decision was made, like, you know what? He's actually got to be, okay. He's got to be well-meaning. Like he's a boy. He tells terrible jokes, but he thinks he's funny. He thinks everybody loves him, and he has occasionally do something where you're like, oh, actually, Michael's kind of smart. Like you figure that out. And the minute that started happening, the show started to at least be more liked. But it really took, I mean, I would say three seasons for that show to catch on. And then once people get get used to the characters and get involved with the characters, then they become their friends. And I mean, look at friends, or Cheers, or any of those things. Then, you, then they are your pals. I mean, you know, if you, when you'd hear people talking about Seinfeld... You know, like, you know, in season five and six and all that, they would talk about, like, their friends. Oh, remember what George did? Like, they become your friends. So you just have to be able to get a show to that point. What's happening now is on network TV and everywhere, they're doing shorter seasons now. They're doing 13, not 22. You know, there's something about, like, a 22-episode season you're with it the whole time, and you know what's yeah, coming it's like back. a
1: world to live in. It feels more lived in.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I, th- I think the thing that's hindering sometimes is not doing these long, long seasons. Look, I have, one of my favorite shows I produce is uh, Welcome to Flatch on Fox, which is a mockumentary style. And we love it, and it's really fun. But w- our first season was 14 episodes. This new season we just did is going to be 13 episodes. You know, and it's starting to slowly kind of catch on, but... I think you need those full seasons to really, you gotcha. know, be to dominate.
1: Paul, I knew you would be the man to ask. I thank you so much for your time today, sir. I think you are a joyous <laughs> filmmaker in this space, so I root for you wholly. Congratulations on the film, which hits Netflix on October 19th. Yes. We didn't get to touch on it. I'm also psyched for Minx. Yeah. Jake Johnson is my boy.
0: That's right. Season two is shooting as we speak right now.
1: Awesome. All right, Paul. Thanks, thank Eric. You, man.
0: Cheers. Talk to you later. Take yeah, care. Bye-bye.
1: Too. All right. Thank you, of course, to my co host for joining me. As always, follow Cade at Cade underscore Ondar and all the great work he's doing at comicbook.com. Follow Brandon Katz at great underscore Katzby and all the work he's doing over at Parrot Analytics. Myself at Eric Italiano and at Pod. We will be back breaking down Black Adam and also interviewing somebody named The Rock. Lifelong hero of mine. Very cool moment. He reached out to me on Twitter after I tagged him. He hooked me up got me into the uk junket so i spoke to him for about seven minutes we will have that attached at the end of the podcast on friday and post on youtube it's always great to see you pal thank you man i can't wait
2: to return for the finale it's gonna be a big finale one finale next week
1: yeah I, I can't wait buddy all right peace man I'm gonna
2: make
0: My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.